0: Indeed, well, I want you to quickly picture Jesus in your mind. What what comes to mind when you think of Jesus? Do you think of Jesus as the kind, gentle, perfectly feathered back hair, loving everyone, a little lamb around his his shoulder, something like that? Maybe uh, the Jesus that exists as our perfect life coach to just help us get to that next level in life help us achieve our dreams, to help us do the things that we've always wanted to do, our, our co-pilot, if you will. And maybe since we just passed Good Friday, maybe you think of sacrificial Jesus, the one who gave himself up for us on the cross. Or, or maybe even Easter, do you think of Jesus as the victorious Jesus, the one who resurrected from the dead? One of the greatest challenges of the Christian faith is thinking rightly about Jesus Christ. And when I mean thinking rightly about Jesus Christ, I mean thinking biblically about Jesus Christ. And also within God's word, maybe the bullseye of that is what Jesus Christ thought of himself. How Jesus thought of himself. How Jesus self-attested, if you will. And my hope and prayer this morning is that we will see a balanced and scripturally informed picture of the two sides of Jesus. If you're not there already, make your way to Matthew 21 as Paul had read for us last week on Easter. We spent some time in the book of Acts remembering the resurrection of Jesus. What a great Easter Sunday it was together. We were packed and thank you every single person that helped from the parking squad, to the welcome team, to the kids ministry, to the set up and tear down, all of that. Thank you so much, volunteers. We are blessed to have you with us. <clears throat> this week, we return to Matthew, and as we're going verse by verse in the book of Matthew, we come to two very familiar accounts, and they, they compare and they contrast two sides of Jesus. And you probably have already realized that we just ran through, or Paul just read through the Triumphal Entry Passage, the Palm Sunday Passage. And if you're visiting with us this morning, you might think, well, they're about two weeks too late on that one. Is Palm Sunday, you know, they didn't preach that on Palm Sunday? Like, were these guys hacks? What's happening here? No, we, we preach expositionally. We're rolling through the Gospel of Matthew, and this is where we're up to this week. It's my hope and prayer that we learn more About it, that maybe this lands a little differently because it's not Palm Sunday. And we see the other account of Jesus as well. Let me just reread those first 11 verses for us to just bring us up to speed. Matthew 21. Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus said to two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. All right, so backing up a little bit, unpacking this. We've got some locations mentioned. So map people, rejoice with me. (laughs) Map people, that was pretty sad. That really was. (laughs) So Jesus has been on a trek starting up here in Galilee, and he's gone about 100 miles through Samaria, and some time in Perea, and then down through Bethphage. And ultimately, he's here. I'll give you some love on this side, too. We're going down this way. And he's in Bethphage, Bethpage, we'll see in a moment, which is about a mile outside of Jerusalem, right? So he's been on this trek. We don't know exactly where this uh, city that Matthew mentions called Bethphage is located. Most scholars put it very close to Bethany and about a mile outside of Jerusalem. We know that Jesus has walked over 100 miles to get here. We you know that he's done ministry along the way, and we've seen a lot of accounts recorded for us in Matthew. And we could just imagine, like, uh, like John says, if we were to write down every single thing that Jesus had ever done, all the books in the world could not contain what he had done. So let your imagination think about other things that Jesus may have done along the way. They aren't in Jerusalem yet. They're outside of Jerusalem. Matthew also, also mentions... <laughs> The Mount of Olives. Jerusalem is surrounded on one side by a ridge, even though Jerusalem's on a hill. Once you get there, Jerusalem's a little set down, and then you have the Mount of Olives around it. And because I love you, I have a picture of the Mount of Olives that I took when I was there with Mel in 2019. So this, where are we going? Misfire. Okay, good. This is, this is the Mount of Olives. I'm pretty sure that's an olive tree, but somebody could tell me otherwise, right? And we're looking down into Jerusalem. There's the Temple Mount over there, and that's where the temple actually was. And so picture Jesus coming in. He's coming in this ridge, and you have this this panoramic view of the city, and especially in the center of the focus is the temple itself, the temple compound itself. As they're getting into town, Jesus sends two disciples on an intentional mission. He says, go into the town. You'll see a donkey there. Get it. Bring it to me. Anybody gives you any static, just tell them, the lord needs them needs the donkey right think about that said the lord he's self-identifying as what how does jesus think of himself lord himself lord master note the detail in this plan this is something that jesus had arranged in advance right he's not using his superpowers to know what's going on here and making people do certain things or making donkeys appear like no this is something that most likely he arranged in advance To do something very, very specific. Something extremely particular. And Matthew tells us directly that this is the fulfillment of prophecy. Right out of Zechariah 9.9. I'll read it in its context in Zechariah. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey prophet Zechariah says the Messiah, your king, will come to you riding on a donkey. Especially he will come riding on the colt, the foal, the young donkey. We have the luxury of other parallel accounts. This account is in every other gospel, including John. And they mentioned that the colt had never been ridden before. So the colt was unbroken. No one had ever ridden this baby donkey before. And if we look at Luke's account quickly... He will tell us that, Luke 19, starting in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. When they drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, at the mount that is called Olivet, or the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here, and if anyone asks you. Why are you untying it? You shall say the Lord has need of it. See, we have not contrasting accounts. There are not mistakes in the Gospels. There are different colors. There are different things. There are different details, right? If I tell my wife about something that happened at church or a Bible study or something like that, who was there, for example, someone else is going to have other details. Doesn't mean that I'm wrong. Just means the other person has other details. So think of it like that. The disciples, of course, do what Jesus tells them to do. They go and they get the donkey. They bring it back to Jesus. They lay their cloaks on the young colt for Jesus to sit on, and off Jesus goes. There is so much unique about this. Not only is it blatant and direct fulfillment of Zechariah 9-9 in a messianic prophecy from hundreds of years previously, but think about this. Jesus has also walked over a 100 miles and now for the last mile, he's gonna get on a donkey. And he's gonna go through the city. This is Passover time. The city's gonna swell to five or six times its normal population. Everybody else is gonna be walking. Because when you walk, you when you go to Passover, you walk to Passover. You don't ride a donkey or a horse or anything. It's a symbol of humility. So Jesus is now riding into this city where everyone else is a pedestrian and walking. That'll stand out a little bit, right? Jesus has told many parables, church, this is a living parable. This is Jesus saying, watch this. I'm going to do something. I'm going to fulfill something right before your eyes. One author, William Lane Craig, in his book, Reasonable Faith, writes, Jesus is deliberately and provocatively claiming to be the promised king of Israel who will inaugurate his reign of peace. His action is like a living parable acted out to disclose his identity. And so Jesus rolls into town on this donkey. Everybody immediately knows what's going on. Zechariah 9-9 clicks in their minds immediately. He's claiming to be the Messiah. I've heard about this guy. I remember hearing about this guy. The guy who teaches with authority. The guy that heals everybody. The guys that even the scribes and the Pharisees are afraid of. They won't confront him anymore. He's riding a donkey just like Zechariah told us he was. How many times, church, did Jesus say to people in Jerusalem and in Israel all about that? After doing a miracle, shh, keep it quiet. Don't tell anyone. Gentile territory, that was the opposite. He told them, go and tell everybody. Jewish territory, he said, not yet. Don't tell anybody what I did for you. That time's over. (laughs) He is rolling down Main Street saying, I'm the Messiah, I am him. All you guys were thinking about it, all you guys were talking about it, I'm him. Look at me, I'm the Messiah. There's no more messianic secret, there's no more hiding his identity, there's no more keeping it quiet. Look at verse 9 back in Matthew 21, again, to see how the people react, and, and they shout. They went before him, they followed him, they shout, Hosanna to the son of David. Hosanna meaning literally, please save or save us. Son of David, another blatant messianic title. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. There's no way we can make a bigger deal than what we're doing right now. There's no way we can give enough praise to what is happening right now. People wondering what is going on, saying, who is this? And they respond, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth. In Galilee. Probably a little smack about the people in Galilee, right? Because they're, you know, they're in big time now. They're in the city, they're in Jerusalem. They're just like, yeah, he's from Galilee. Maybe a little bit. But they're talking about him. And they say, this is the prophet, this is the Messiah. So, why a donkey? A donkey, riding a donkey, shows that you are a victorious king in a time of peace. If a king was going to war, he'd be riding a war horse. But if a king was at a time of peace and victory, he'd probably be riding a donkey as a symbol of humility, as a symbol of gratitude, as a symbol of peace and victory. Put this humility together with the undeniable messianic claims that Jesus is acting out this living parable, and we have this. Jesus is the humble Savior. Jesus is the humble Savior. My friend R.C. writes that messianic expectations were at a fever pitch. People had been hearing about this Jesus. People were wondering if he was going to show up to the feast. And boy, does he show up. In other words, Jesus just pulled the pin on the messianic hand grenade. Literally driving down Main Street and saying, yes, I'm him. I'm the Messiah. And people lose their mind. But look at the way he's doing it. He's riding a donkey. right? People are, are spreading palm branches, bringing peat, or bringing and shouting Hosanna. He's, he's ruling and reigning as a humble king, he says. And okay, great. So, what's the application for us? I mean, many of us remember these stories from Sunday school and the flannel graphs. I'm dating myself, for they don't probably use flannel graphs anymore. What's the application for us? And first, I think there's one obvious application we need to know is, again, the self-attestation of Jesus. What does Jesus think of himself? Because, church, we all know one of the biggest claims against Christianity is that Jesus never said he was the Messiah. Jesus never claimed to be God. Nonsense when you look at Pomsomé. He absolutely claimed to be God. He might as well have had a flashing neon sign with arrows pointing saying Messiah God I'm him. How does Jesus so so in our in our in our discussions with family and friends and even in the way that we think about our faith ourselves. Church, there's a there's a reality here where it doesn't even so much matter what we think. What does the Bible say? What does Jesus say about himself? You cannot deny that Jesus says, I am God. I am the Messiah. I am the fulfillment of prophecy. If you miss this from the little donkey stunt, you miss the whole point. But perhaps the second application is in the demeanor of Jesus. Even though the crowd is hyped up, yelling Hosanna, throwing down their their cloaks and their, their palm branches at what one commentator said, a makeshift red carpet for Jesus to just walk into town on. He's not, he's not on a political campaign. He's on a mission. And what do the people want in a the king? They want a victorious Messiah. They don't want somebody on a, on a mission of peace. And They want a victorious Messiah who will come in riding on a war horse that will lead a rebellion against Rome and kick them out so that we can have our land back. That's what they want. That's what they're hoping for, and that is not what Jesus is going to give them. And the first clue is that he's riding on a donkey. You see, people have their own agenda. He demonstrates, even at this moment, a settled trust in the plan of God. He doesn't get wrapped up in what's going on around him. He doesn't get swept up in the fever pitch of, yes, let's kick Rome out. He has a settled trust in the plan of God, and we have so much to learn from Jesus in that, don't we, church? A lot of humility is trust. Sometimes when we're actually not trusting the plan of God, there's a lot of pride in there. And saying, God, I wouldn't do it this way. What are you doing with my life right now? That's not humility. That's pride. Jesus, the humble king, has a settled trust in the plan of God. He says, I can let things play out the way God wants them to, and I can do it with a settled trust. Jesus is the humble Savior. We should trust humbly even when that plan is in conflict with the world around us, and we see that more and more, don't we? The plan of the church, the the claims of the Bible, the, the environment that we're in today are continually more and more in conflict with the world around us. The people welcoming Jesus didn't want a humble savior. They wanted a conquering king, one who would defeat the occupying enemy of Rome and restore the kingdom to Israel. But Jesus' first objective is not Rome, and he's not going to let the people pull him into that. Jesus' first objective is his own people and what they've done to the sacredness of the worship of God. Look at verse 12. Matthew makes it seem like he makes a beeline from this, hops off his donkey and goes to the temple. Not sure it actually worked that way. The other gospel writers had maybe a day in between. Look at verse 12. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple, and he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. What's important here is that Matthew, when he says "temple," he doesn't necessarily mean walking into the inner sanctum of the temple. Right? There's, the temple is a whole complex, and I have a picture for us—two picture a day. This is a model of the the temple at this time—the Herodian Temple. Just a glorious. This whole complex is over 30 acres. Okay. What Jesus is probably talking about when he rolls in and starts confronting these people is is the inner courts right not in there nee, 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 nee. right over here in the inner in, in the outer courts this passover week the outer court picture it would be filled with people there were requirements that had to be met there were feasts that had to be attended there were sacrifices that had to be made there was temple tax that had to be paid There'd be no shortage of vendors there willing to sell you what you needed, willing to take your Roman money and exchange it for Israel currency in order to pay the temple tax. There'd be no shortage of vendors to to sell you any animals that you needed to sacrifice, of course, fully approved by all the scribes and Pharisees. And of course, for a premium. Of course, for a tax of their own right off the top. I mean, we get this, right? You ever go to the movies? You ever go to uh, uh, a Yankee game? I don't know. I'm not a sports guy. You ever go to Disney, right, with the kids? I want a small soda and a sandwich. That'll be $75, please. (laughs) Right? And what do we do? We, we pay it because we're starving, the kids are cranky, and they're not going to stop. They want a $7 bottle of water. So we're going to get them a $7 bottle of water, right? Same concept here. This is what's happening. They got them. They just, like, just like wherever you're going, the movies, they got you. You're there, right? You want something to drink? You're going to pay their prices. You're there. You need to sacrifice? You're going to pay for a sheep, and you're going to pay a premium price for a sheep. But the, the presence of the vendors is not really the problem. They probably had vendors all over the city. That wasn't the problem. The problem was the location of the vendors. And again, the outside court, right? And I leave that picture up there intentionally because what, where are they? They're still within the temple grounds. They're not outside on the streets. They're within the, the temple grounds. Some commentators think that this is a recent change, that, that maybe the scribes and the Pharisees said, hey, maybe we can strike a deal here. We can provide some premium vendor access to the temple grounds and then we can get a little cut off this and we can let them set up shop right in the outer court. What a great idea. What a great way to make money. And their presence there shows how corrupt the religious leaders have become. As Paul read from Jeremiah, the shepherds who have gone astray now under judgment. This is the temple grounds it's probably not too far out of the realm of possibilities to say again that this whole system was corrupt that the scribes and the pharisees the high priests were getting a cut off this as well and jesus says no way not in my father's temple this is not how it works things are about to change and he takes action look at verse again in verse 12, we see again, look at it again. Jesus entered the temple. He drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of all those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. Matthew tells us again that Jesus goes and drove out those who not only sold, but customers too. <laughs> the customers who are buying this and the vendors, he flips over the tables. I'm almost going to flip over the pulpit, right? Another account tells us he makes a whip out of courts and chases people out of there. It's also important to realize, remember the, the, the size and the scale of that, right? Atheists love to pick on this and, and say, like somebody like Bart Ehrman in one of his books says, you know, that's ridiculous. Jesus could never chase all those people out. It doesn't say he chased all the people out. He could never, that's 30 acres. He'd be there all day with his whipping arm and turning over tables. He probably turned over a small corner. And it certainly, certainly aroused quite a ruckus in that corner. Maybe people on the other side didn't even know. But Jesus did it symbolically. And Jesus did it to state a point. The point is the outer temple, the outer court was reserved for all people not just Jewish people. And as Jesus mentioned specifically, the outer court was reserved for prayer, for people to come and pray. Well, the court of the Gentiles, so the court of of all other peoples, right? Think back in those times, you had two buckets of people. You had Jewish people and everybody else. The everybody else person is the Gentile people. You want to come? You want to pray to our God? You are welcome. Here's your spot. How in the world... Can they come and they pray if the whole place looks like Costco five days before Christmas? It's it's not going to happen. It's a madhouse. How, How is that a sanctified place where people can pray, where people can draw near to God, where people can contemplate these things? It is impossible. One commentator says, the people of God were preventing the nations from praying. In our faith, church, We've got to know what is important enough to go to battle over. What we will defend at all costs. First order doctrines like God being three in one, the Trinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, salvation through grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, the supremacy and sovereignty of God in all things. Some hills aren't worth dying on, but there are some hills that are worth dying on. Sometimes church, we do have to flip over a couple tables. Sometimes, though, we might be more concerned with what people think instead of the truth of what God says in his word. Jesus was not concerned with what people thought. He was concerned with what they were doing to the worship of the Heavenly Father. Sometimes I also wonder, what impediments has the church put today in the way of those seeking God today. What roadblocks has the American evangelical church set up that obstructs the true, the true reason people should be coming to church? Maybe instead of crowding the outer court with vendors, megachurches create entertainment complexes built around celebrity pastors. They carefully design services to be worship experiences filled with smokes and smoke lights and lasers. They sing Jesus is my boyfriend songs with squishy lyrics and in so doing they pervert the true meaning of what a church is supposed to be doing and how on earth people are supposed to come into an experience of living life truly Coram Deo before God. I have to think Jesus walked into a Bethel church or a Hillsong church, he'd be flipping over tables in the lobby. Instead, what does Jesus say? He says, my house will be called a house, my house. Do you see that? What does Jesus say about himself? My house, he says. My house will be called a house of prayer. This is not a house of prayer. This is a house of robbers. This is, this is thievery. This is stealing. This is corruption. You are blocking access to the temple, and you are extorting my people. That's why he's so mad. Most likely, Jesus is combining two Old Testament references here, one from Isaiah, another one from Jeremiah. But there's another contrast coming. Jesus, once again, he he kicks out, right, those who the Pharisees and the scribes wanted there. Don't kick them out. They're our vendors. We're getting a cut on that. And he welcomes people that probably the scribes and the Pharisees didn't want anywhere near their precious little temple complex. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him, and in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things or the wondrous works or signs that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, watch this, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant, and they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said to them, Yes. Have you ever read your Bible? (laughs) Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise and praise. Leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Jesus is concerned with, once again, what, what, what? once again, church? We've seen this so many times in Matthew. Who is he concerned with? The marginalized, the oppressed, those that society and the religious people want nothing to do with. How can the blind and the lame ever even get through this massive humanity of vendors to get to the temple to be healed in the first place? They can't. They're pushed to the side, literally marginalized. You can't be here. We've got vendors here. I know you're trying to get help. I know you're trying to get healing, but no, 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 no. You stay out there. And worse, kids, children. We know what society thought of children then, right? It wasn't good. And Jesus again welcomes them. Once again, we have Jesus refusing to disregard him. But it's the children now in this case that are acting in fulfillment of the messianic prophecies. And watch this. What do they begin to cry out once again? Hosanna. Hosanna to the son of David. Tiny voices crying out to be saved by Jesus the Messiah. And what do the Pharisees and the scribes and all of those people think about this? They hate it. And they saw him kicking out their precious money-making vendors to let in these people, the lame, the sick, the blind, the kids. They were indignant. And they asked him, do you hear what these kids are saying about you? And I just absolutely love it when Jesus says this. It's one of my favorite things that Jesus says, yes, haven't you read your Bible? (laughs) Which is such a smack in the face to them because they're like, well, yeah, we've had it memorized since we were seven we spend our entire lives reading the Bible, Mr. Jesus from Galilee. Yes, we know what the Bible says. And Jesus says, Well, why are you surprised then? Because Psalm says it point blank, the book of Psalms in, in Psalm 8:2, out of the mouths of babies and infants you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. He says this is what's supposed to happen mouths of babies and infants. They're the ones that as well are calling for the son of David, Hosanna, to save them. And Jesus doesn't need the religious, the powerful, the scribes, the priests, the Pharisees. He goes to the sick, the lame, the blind, the children. In other words, to the ones who know that they need a savior. In other words, watch this, the humble. So, second point, Jesus is the Savior to the humble. And we've seen this again in Matthew, but it's all over Scripture. And it's a terrifying verse in James 4 6 that tells us God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That verse should terrify us. God opposes the proud. How often do we go about our day so concerned with our lives, our lists, our agenda, our programs, our whatever, our plan, our deal, and maybe God is standing in opposition to all of it? Why? Because whose plan is it? Is it your plan? Is it God's plan? Whose glory is it for? Is it for your glory or for God's glory? Those who humble themselves and know they need a Savior will be saved by them. If you are proud, you will be opposed by him. This is the essence of the gospel, church. We're not the center of our universe. God is. It's not our world, it's God's world. We're not autonomous. We are recipients of his grace. The reality that you and God are just not automatically okay. We come into this world an enemy with God. Because of sin. We don't have an arrangement with God because of our sin. We don't have, "Yeah, I know I'm supposed to be doing this, but God's understanding." No, no, he's not understanding. You're an enemy of God before Christ. God is God. He decides how he wants to be worshipped. It is the ultimate arrogance to think that we can twist the God of creation to be an idol in our own image. Who does what we say. Who loves what we say he is to love. Who is in service of us and our own little sub-kingdoms. God can't be worshipped by anyone who is not reconciled to him. That's the point. We first have to, what, humble ourselves and understand who we are and understand that, yes, I am an enemy of God, and yes, there is wrath between him and me, and yes, I am on the road to hell, and yes, there is a Savior provided by God, and his name is Jesus. That requires humility, because we want to be the boss of our own lives, don't we? Why would we ever do this? Because this is what Jesus did, church. He was the humble Savior, and he also comes to give salvation to the humble. So here's the big idea, not rocket science, probably hard, or probably not hard for you to surmise. Jesus is the humble Savior who saves the humble. Jesus is the humble Savior who saves the humble. In the very misnamed triumphant entry into Jerusalem, Jesus isn't seeking triumph. He's simply declaring a fact. He's saying, I'm the Messiah. I'm the fulfillment of all prophecies. I'm the one who brings peace, not victory for Israel, not the achievement of your dreams, not success for your political party. Jesus has come as the Messiah to bring us salvation, and we need it. He is the humble Savior who brings peace, and first and foremost, peace with God, because we need it. And who does he bring this for? The humble, those who know they are sinners, separated from God in need of a Savior. So first I say, if you've not had that understanding, if you've not taken that step of humbling yourself before the God of the universe and saying, yes, I'm a sinner separated from you, that I have no way of saving myself, but you gave us Jesus, and then throwing yourself in faith upon the mercy of Jesus to save you, I encourage you to do that today. And if you want to talk to me about that, it's my favorite thing to talk about. But remember, if you have done that, I'd say this, church, Christians, whose agenda are you living for? Jesus submitted himself to God's agenda when he rolled through Jerusalem. It wasn't the people's. It wasn't anything else that was going on. He was on a mission. When he rolled through that temple, he was on the agenda to restore worship and sanctity, not to him, but to remember that of course Jesus is God but at this point the temple period he's saying it's about God being worshiped and you're defiling it I would say whose agenda are you living for we need constant reminders on this don't we why because that little thing just creeps back up on the throne again the big self right loves to kick the Lord Jesus Christ out of the throne and then try and climb back on the throne right I think of Romans 12 where it says, offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, right? Which is, you think like, people don't understand. What do you mean a living sacrifice? Sacrifice is dead. We put it on there and then, you know, we, it says, no, it's a living sacrifice. One theologian once said, the problem with a living sacrifice is what? It tries to crawl back off the altar. <laughs> you got to go get it, bring it back, put it back on the altar again. That's us, Christians. Ourself tries to crawl back onto that throne and kick Jesus out. And we have to remember that Jesus did not live for the political agenda. Jesus did not live for his own glory or the whims of the crowd. Jesus lived as the humble savior to bring salvation to the humble for the glory of God. And remember that God opposes the proud. How proud is it to put ourselves up on that that throne and leave ourselves there? When it's God's throne, God opposes the proud. You ever wonder why stuff just isn't working in your life? Maybe God's opposing the proud. Check who's on the throne. Maybe God is standing in your way. These two sides of Jesus that we've gone through today, church, paint a a balanced and necessary picture of our Savior. And so often we can think of Jesus as just the kind Savior, the gentle Savior, But yet, the second portrayal of Jesus, we see him going into the temple. Going to war. Flipping over tables and chasing people out with a whip. And sometimes, church, we need to flip over a few tables. We will need to make a stand. It's coming. I don't know when it's coming. It's going to come in certain ways here and there. We've already seen it. We will need to make a stand. We will need to say, no, we're not doing that. Because my God says this we can only do so because the humble Savior has gone before us to save the humble. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what you have given us in the treasure of the events that have been recorded and passed on to us so faithfully by the writers of Scripture whom you inspired with your Holy Spirit. Lord, would you use your Holy Spirit to continue to humble us? And I know that's a very dangerous prayer. But Lord, as you humble us, your power is made perfect in weakness. And we're reminded of the greatness of our God, the humble Savior that came to save the humble. Lord, be with us for those who have may not made that decision for Christ to submit, to bow the knee once in humility and say, no, it's not my life. It's your life. I submit to you. Would that happen today? For those of us who have, who would claim that we are living our lives for your glory what our lives actually look like, we are living them for your glory. Would we continue to, in humility, put sin to death? Would we have the courage, because of what Jesus has come to do, Lord, to flip over those tables sometimes, to make a stand and say, this is not going to happen, this is, this is too important Help us to know and have great discernment to know those times and those moments, Lord. Protect us as the church. Strengthen us as we seek to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. We pray it all for your glory. Amen. Amen. Well, I'd invite you to stand as we close. and.